you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. It's good to be in the house of God. Amen. Yeah, praise God. And thank you for a beautiful worship. I love the third song that you introduced. That's so beautiful from night to light. And that's beautiful. So, um, as you know, we are on a journey through the gospel of John. And and we are in chapter 13. And today we'll be examining a few verses from 21 to 30. 21 to 30. So, if you have your Bibles, it's a good time for you to turn and and turn to that particular page. We actually going to see, we are seeing the deception of a traitor. I want to be pretty harsh as I make these statements. Uh, Apostle John has woven in rich theology within this text that we are going to look at today. So we need to dissect this and see what the themes are. So I've given the title, that's why I've given the title, Decoding the Deception. Take this passage and how do we decode this? But as I was reading the narrative of the text today, I couldn't help but think how history is repeating. History is repeating. I was reminded of my teenage days in school, growing up. My mom was very keen on on me getting to elocution and dramas because she was an English teacher and she was in charge of the school plays and the students performed every year, so most of them were from Shakespeare's collections. And in one of those plays, I took on the role of Julius Caesar. And it took me quite a bit of practice, trust me, to say with fine diction to the satisfaction of my mother, Caesar's last word, which was, you two Brutus. So that I can recite with clarity and passion My mom sat me down and walked me through the narrative over and over again so that I would understand the pain and the the suffering that that Caesar went through. Because it was a historical event, it's good to know the abstract so that we understand the gravity of that pain. You know the popularity, I know how you may be knowing the story of Julius Caesar, but the popularity and his position as the supreme ruler Julius Caesar was not liked by many members of the Senate. And after Caesar attained the status of dictator in 44 BC, these officials decided to get rid of him. So although Brutus was one of Caesar's closest friends, Brutus had recognized the dangers in Caesar's ambition, and he too joined the conspiracy in a leading role. So a group of 60 conspirators used flattery appeal to Julius Caesar's ego to lure him to a meeting of the Senate on March 15th in 44 BC. So it's about 2067 years ago. I'm talking about history. And once he was in the building, they surrounded him and stabbed him at least 23 times to death. And Brutus stood there watching Caesar dying. Caesar would have have had a glimpse of hope 
seeing Brutus being the closest friend there. So he staggers towards his friend, appealing to him. But Brutus stabs him too. So according to Shakespeare, unbelieving Caesar says, et tu Brute, which means you too Brutus. And then Caesar collapsed to the ground. These were apparently the last words he uttered. This is part of history now. But as we examine at the succession of from Julius Caesar, we will see, church, hear me out, the historicity of the Bible. You will see that. Our historian, Dr. Luke, makes these connections very clearly. So it's a bit of a history lesson as we go through this as well. I thought it's important for us to know that. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And it came to pass in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus was the stepson of Julius Caesar. He reigned in the season of 27 BC to 14 CE. That's the time that Christ was born. Right? Part of history. And then in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, Again, Dr. Luke talks about this. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. So again, Tiberius ruled from 14, AC, 14 um, CE to 37 CE. So in, in other words, he was the adopted son of Caesar's, Caesar Augustus. So in other words, he was the victim, or he was, sorry, he was there when Jesus was executed or crucified. So now fast forward, church. About 77 years later from the death of Julius Caesar, in the same Greco-Roman world, we witness another betrayal. This time to a closest confidant betraying his master. And this yet another historical event. So church, be very careful when you question the historicity of the Bible. That is what we are seeing in the text today. The subject of the verses before us is a very painful one. They describe the last scene between our Lord Jesus Christ and the false apostle Julius Caesar. Sorry, Judas Cariot. Slip of my tongue and not fault of the brain. They contain the last words which passed between them before they parted forever. According to the scriptures, they never seem to have met again on earth excepting in the garden when our Lord was taken prisoner. Within a short time, church, as we read, both the master and the deceitful servant were dead. Here's the sad part. That's the best sad face that I could take. Here's the sad part. Think about this seriously. The master and the servant will never meet again in the body until the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised and the judgment is set and the books are opened. Think about it, church. What a dreadful meeting that will be between Jesus and Judas Cariot. Sad, isn't it? With that in mind, let us dive into the text. Apostle John writes this way. 
verse number 21. When Jesus has said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Everybody say troubled in spirit. He was troubled in spirit. And testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Apostle John tells us that shortly after washing the disciples' feet, which we have witnessed over the last two weeks, Jesus was troubled in spirit and he said, one of you will betray me. Let's think about this church. The sovereign Lord was troubled. Why was he troubled? That's a question we need to ask. Why was he troubled? Of course, it was the bitter sorrow of seeing a chosen apostle deliberately becoming an apostate or a backslider or an ungrateful traitor. Church, Jesus is an omniscient God who knows the depth of the human heart. He can see the motive and implications of Judas's deception or betrayal. So he was troubled because of the unreciprocated love of Jesus. He was troubled because of the ingratitude of Judas's heart. He was troubled because he had the deep hatred of sin. It was sitting right next to him, sin personified. He was troubled because he could not, he could see with his omnipotent eye Satan moving around Judas. He was troubled because he had the knowledge of the sin of the betrayer and the terrors of his eternal punishment. He was troubled because he had an inner awareness that Judas was a classic illustration of the wretchedness of sin. Sin which would have to bear, that he would have to bear in his own body on the very next day. Sin for which he would be made responsible and would die for. You would say, but pastor, the Lord knew it was coming. He knew it all. So what was the big deal about it? But church, listen. Such sorrow is not less acute just because it was long foreseen. Imagine this. You have a rebellious sibling who is dying in front of your own eyes with sickness that he brought upon himself. Of course, you know that his death is imminent. You grieve, but you desperately want him to commit to the Lord, won't you? That's what we want. But when that happens and when he passes away without knowing Christ, how painful that will be for you. Why do you grieve? Because you love your sibling. So when Jesus saw it drawing near, he was troubled because he loved Judas to the end. And we saw this passage two weeks ago. He loved his disciples to the end. So this passage should make us see the amazing love of Christ to sinners. No matter how pious or polished we may look on the outside church, Jesus can see each one of us through. Let me ask you a personal question today, this morning. Would he be troubled in spirit looking at you this morning? Will he be troubled? And you know what I mean. 
Church, as we think about our own salvation, remember that Jesus endured all of the trouble and more to secure your salvation. Remember the anguish and pain he went through to grant you this freedom for eternal damnation. What more are you waiting for, church? If there is a Judas within your heart, get rid of him. Come to the Lord for cleansing. Let the Lord not be troubled seeing you today. Are you with me? So let us approach this throne of grace with the gratitude and love. So before we go further, let me give you an overview of the text chosen for today. Verse 21 we looked at. When you go to verse 22, what we see in the verse 22 is that the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. They didn't know who he was referring to when he said someone was going to betray him. Then in verse 23 and 25, I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'll give you the gist of it. We see that the nudging of Peter, John the Apostle whom Jesus loved, and asked Jesus to, as to who that betrayer was. Peter was just nudging, John, why don't you ask him? And in verse 26, what we see, Jesus told the disciple that it would be to whom he would dip the bread and give, and he gave it to Jesus. Sorry, keep making the mistake. Give it to Judas. Just think about this. You are seated with Jesus. And he says, the guy to whom I'm going to dip the bread and give is the guy who is going to betray me. And he does it right away, the Bible says. He gave it to Judas Iscariot. If you were seated there, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out who would betray the Lord. And then, in verse 27, he is telling Judas, what you do, do quickly. Do it right away. Now I'm a bit confused about verses 28 to 29. Look at verses 28 and 29. The disciples thought Jesus was asking Judas to buy things for the feast or to give something to the poor. How come the disciples did not figure out that it was Judas? I honestly don't know which part of Jesus' instructions or, 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 or comments that they did not get. But one thing is clear, Jesus did not, please hear me out, did not isolate Judas in public. Did you notice that? He did not. Then in verse 30 we see this, John writes this way, that Judas received the bread and then went out immediately and John concludes by saying that it and it was night. It was night. So the portion of the text concludes in verse 30, and it was night. When John writes, and it was night, he means more than the fact that it was dark outside. It was always night when a person rejects God's love and goes into the darkness of eternity without God. Later on, we'll see that Judas was referred to as the son of perdition, which means man doomed to destruction. That's what it means. 
And it was a special night when the son of perdition betrayed the spotless son of God into the hands of the evil men. So what lessons do we take from this text? I went through the whole ten verses to you. As I decode this, I see two themes merging from that. Two themes. Number one, what I see is the sovereignty of God in this passage. Or the glory of God is being revealed. And number two, what I see in this passage is the severity of sin. The plight of man is revealed. So we're going to look at the sovereignty of God. And let me explain there are two sides of Jesus' glory or the sovereignty of God that shine through this story. There are two sides to it. The firstly, we see the sovereignty of God in his or his glory is displayed in the unfathomable wisdom of Christ. Everybody say the word wisdom of Christ. Wisdom of Christ. Why do I say that? Seeing how Jesus chose a man like Judas to be one of his disciples. The question that puzzles for all of us for generations, and I'm sure even the disciples, is that why did Jesus choose Judas to be an apostle? Did he know the corrupt heart and the character flaws that would cause Judas to do such a bad thing? Of course Jesus knew. He did. Because Jesus was the Messiah, and we also know that Judas was not casually appointed. And we, we read in Luke chapter 6 that he spent the night praying before he chose the 12 disciples. And so choosing Judas is not a mistake. Jesus knew fully well the Father's plan for the cross, and so picked Judas as one of the disciples. Jesus, Jesus knew all along that Judas would betray him. And we learned that in John chapter 6 and John chapter 13, we saw last week that Jesus said that Judas' betrayal was so, that, was so that the scripture may be fulfilled. So there's a purpose why Jesus chose Judas. So that Judas was part of God's plan. So as we have seen through John's gospel... The Father sent Jesus to earth to do His will, and at the center of the will was our salvation. All of our salvation. Where Jesus would offer Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus' choice of Judas as an apostle, knowing full well that He would betray Him, was a divine choice. It was a divine choice to fulfill the divine purpose, but unknown to those around, unknown to those around. At this time, no one, including the disciples, understood the necessity of the cross. They couldn't grasp it, they couldn't comprehend it, because they wanted Jesus to reign as the king in that land. So they couldn't understand at that time, why would Jesus have, to have chose Judas? But he played a key part in the events leading to the cross. So being an omniscient God, Jesus knew what was coming. His actions were to support and comply with the plan of God. 
with the plan of God, but no one could fathom that. So that's why I said Jesus choosing Judas to be an apostle, it really underscores the truth of Isaiah 50, 55, and we have heard this passage being read many times, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. That God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and His ways are not our ways. Church, there's an application here for us. Many times we don't understand why God does what He does or allows certain trials into our lives. But we have to trust Him. We have to trust Him. Every questionable thing in your life, the Lord permits because He knows the end of the story. He knows the end of the story. You don't. I don't. I still remember the day I landed in this land, my, my, wife and I, uh, my wife and I, we went on our knees and we committed, our, committed ourselves and said, God, we want to serve you. And thank God, uh, the Air Canada dropped us in Mississauga, we landed in Toronto. And wherever I looked at, I could see more people from my country. I thought, God, you have brought me to the right place to do the ministry. Interestingly, Within three months, I was applying for jobs everywhere. God gave me a job at the center of the universe in Dundas, Hamilton. And I was asked to move. I'm telling you truth, nothing but the truth. I, even as I was driving, I said, God, you're making a mistake. You don't understand why I'm here. I was taken to this little town in Dundas and I was left there. I couldn't see anybody having this complexion. I thought God has called me to minister here. I couldn't. I thought, what am I going to do? I said, God, I want to serve you. Long story short, we'll make another day to explain all that. The birth of Seekers Christian Fellowship happened in Dundas. And we are here today. I didn't understand you cannot fathom God's plans. So here's a great example of Joseph. Imagine that. God had a plan for Joseph to make him the premier of Egypt. But the pathway that he had to go through, Joseph riding through immense hardship, it was difficult for him to understand, even for us to understand. Yet ultimately, it brought glory to God. So, the lesson that's why Apostle James say, consider it pure joy, my brothers. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, bringing glory to God. So I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know. But we got to trust. If you trust God and if you love God to move you through, it will ultimately bring glory to Him. Jesus' choice of Judas displayed Jesus' Jesus's glory. Likewise, your trials, when you endure with patience, will display His glory. So church, in this narrative, firstly, the sovereignty of God or the glory of God is seen in the unfathomable wisdom of the Lord. 
The second thing that I'm seeing here, we see the sovereignty of God in his patience and love toward Judas right to the end. The ultra patience and love. That's where I see the sovereignty of God. Even though Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, he did not remove him from the apostolic circle. He did not. Judas, Judas was seated in the place of honor where Jesus honored him by giving him the bread and the wine. Jesus didn't reveal what he knew of Judas's evil heart to other disciples to try to get them to take action against him. He treated Judas with the same patience and grace as he treated the other disciples. Since none of them suspected that Judas was the betrayer. Again, there's a divine mystery that we cannot comprehend. How knowing who G Judas was, yet he genuinely loved Judas to the end. And held out to him the offer of salvation right to the end. We see God's glory in the same way today, church. The Hebrew writer says that he, Jesus endures the hostility of sinners against him. In Hebrew 12.3, with amazing patience and love. So as I was preparing this message, I was so convicted of the times I sinned by my thoughts, by my words, by my action. Yet, Jesus did not give up on me. He loved me to the end. He loves you to the end. He continually showers His mercy and grace upon our lives. That's why you would see in my emails, I always put this blurb at the very end, because of God's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. I'm sure you can relate it too, but church, when we see the wickedness of this world, Especially the blasphemies that are shamelessly spoken against Jesus. Don't you feel like crying out, Lord, just blast these evildoers off the planet. You know, church, that day is coming. That day is coming. Peter made it very clear. It is applicable to all of us, but that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the, and the works that are in it will be burnt up. Scary truth, isn't it? It's coming. The day is coming to not only one person, to everybody seated here around the world. All the worldly things that we possess are as precious will be gone. But here is the hope that we have. Here's the hope that we have. Let's back up one verse. Peter explains why the day is delayed. Look at 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So here's the invitation to you. The same patience and love the Lord rendered to Judas, He is pouring it out on you today. Today. He does not want you to perish. He wants you to come to His fold. Church, please take this message seriously.
because the day is coming. It's coming like a thief. This is the glory of God. So church, listen, if you have not yet repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, if you are a lukewarm believer, still you come to Him this morning. Or if you are a believer still struggling with besetting sin, may this day, He is patiently and lovingly entreating you those who have not committed your lives to him, to come to him for eternal life. Those lukewarm believers, he's entreating you to come to him to make that light burn bright again today. Those believers who are struggling with besetting sin, he's entreating you to come to him to be an overcomer. Come while you still can. There'll be a time you want to come. But you cannot. But you cannot. It'll be too late. So we looked at two things right now from this. The sovereignty of God. We looked at the unfathomable wisdom of God. We saw His sovereignty. And we saw the ultra-patience of God. Patience and love. We see the sovereignty of God in that. But there's another side to the story. Now listen, church. This is a sad truth. Hear me out. The sovereignty of God or the glory of God cannot be understood or appreciated by everyone, but only by those who have the deepest understanding of sin and what it means. You'll never understand the sovereignty of God, you'll never understand the glory of God if you don't understand the deepest understanding of what sin is. A superficial view of sin, sadly, that's what the whole world have today, leads to a superficial view of salvation and a superficial view of who God is. Now, Judas's betrayal speaks volume about the severity of sin, the impact of it in human life. So let us take time to get a deeper understanding of what sin is from Judas's life, from this passage so that we'll have a greater understanding of the God's sovereignty and the glory of God. From the actions of Judas, we can take five observations in this passage about the severity of sin. Every one of us can relate to that. So come with me as we explore these lessons from Judas. The first observation I have in this is the dreadful nature of sin. The dreadful nature of sin. You know, before we start throwing a stone at Judas and saying, how could you do such a thing? Church, listen. We all had the seeds of betraying Christ in our hearts before God graciously saved us. All of us. Even though we might look very pious and holy here, there was a time we had the heart of Judas. God saved us. Think of what Judas witnessed in his three years of close association with God, with Jesus. He had heard, number one, Jesus' teaching both in public and private. And you have heard it too. He had wit witnessed most of Jesus' miracles. And you have witnessed too Jesus' miracles in your own life. Judas had seen Jesus' grace and love toward the ungrateful and unlovely. 
And you have seen that amongst your friends and relatives. But Judas had never seen any hint of sin in Jesus, whether in public or in private. You have never seen the sin of Jesus, because he's sinless. And yet, he betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders for a few pieces of silver. Life of Judas teaches us that being with a good teacher or following a good master does not make you the right person for Christ. Sinners need more than a good example to be saved. Judas had the best example who has ever lived, but still he was dead in trespasses and sins, as Apostle Paul beautifully says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We can see the dreadful nature of sin in Judas. Unless the Holy Spirit imparts new life, sinners are not capable of repenting of sin, believing in Christ, and reforming their lives. That is why Jesus told the religious Nicodemus, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. How about you, church? Let's bring it down to us. Are you still a follower of the leader? Are you going through the motions of a church goer? You may ask, Pastor, how do I know that I am not a follower of Jesus? How do you know? Here's a quick checklist. I've just picked up six, but it could be more. Just come along with me as I, as I walk through this. Number one, you, are a, you, are, you have the heart of Judas if you are motivated by image only. Your desire to look good in the eyes of the church and of the world. And in Luke chapter, chapter, um, sorry, chapter 6, it says this, speaking about the beatitude, the Lord says, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast you out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. And then he says in verse 26, Jesus says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Interesting, isn't it? Number two, if you seek to conform to those around, around you, you are pious when you are in the church, giving a different demeanor in the world. Peter says very clearly, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Are you one of them? You're one person here, you're other person outside. Number three, you have the Judas's heart if you have a false sense of eternal security. By doing the bare minimum, comparing to be good by secular standards, just like the Pharisee and, and who went and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other man. Unjust and adulterous and even as the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But his heart was not with Christ. Do you have a false sense of eternal security? Number four. Are you someone who compartmentalizes your faith? You pick and choose the beliefs. 
When it comes to this, yes. When it comes to that, no. The scripture is very clear, James writes, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Number five, you have the heart of Judas. If you fear punishment of sin, that sin itself. You know, church, sometimes we are afraid of the punishment, but, but we, are not, we are not afraid to sin. If we are not caught, we love to sin. We'll thrive on sin. The only reason we don't want to sin is because of the punishment. What we don't realize is every time we sin, we are hurting our master. Number six, the last one. The list can be long. A lot of talk, but no action. We can talk the Christian jargons, but it's not seen in your action. Then you have the heart of Judas. So the first observation that I have in this passage is that the dreadful nature of sin. When we understand it, we'll have a better view of it. The second observation I have is that Judas shows that Jesus gives solemn warning to those who are called the religious. Look at this. Judas is one of many warnings in the Bible that especially apply to religious people. Religious people are often blind to their need for the new birth. They grew up in the church. They know all the religious jargon. They can quote scripture. They serve in various ministries. They hold positions. They even have theological training. But like Judas, they have never repented of their sins. They have never. The apostle Paul was like that before his conversion and he took great pride in his religious heritage and he was more zealous than many of his contemporaries in persecuting the church. But God had to strike Paul down on the Damascus road and to bring him to see that all his religious self-unrighteousness, self-righteousness was garbage compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So church, if you grew up in the church, as I did, and are familiar with religious matters, the warning is for you. You need to have that new birth. If you have never had a Damascus experience in your life, you should question your stand with Christ. So the second lesson that we learn is that there's a warning that is given to the religious people here. The question you want to ask is that, did I have a Damascus ex experience in my own life? The third observation I have here is that we can find hypocrites among the followers of Jesus. There are hypocrites among the followers, and we are very good to point out someone else and say they are a hypocrite. Keep in mind that Judas didn't look like a villain in that place in a dark coat, gloating over how he was going to profit at Jesus' death. When Judas announced that one of the, when Jesus announced that one of the twelve would betray him, the other eleven didn't all around turn around and cried out to Judas and said, you are the one, get out of here. They never said that. Because Judas blended so well amongst the twelve. What did they say? They, when Jesus said that, they were deeply grieved and they surely 
not I, Lord. It shows that no one suspected Judas to be the one. Even when Judas left the room to do his dirty deed, the others did not suspect them. We looked at it earlier. They thought he was going out to buy something or he's going to give alms to the poor. Judas played his role beautifully. Church hypocrites can fool other people, but they can never fool God who looks into your heart. Church, it may shock us, and it has, when a respected church leader turns away from the faith. But it doesn't shock the Lord. It doesn't shock the Lord, who knows and keeps all who are truly His. Only you in your heart will know if you are faking. No one else will know that. Remember this church, if that is you, the ultimate end is eternal damnation. If that is you, today is the day to repent. So the third observation here is that there are hypocrites among the believers. And the question is, are you one of them? The fourth observation I see is that there is a warning about our motives. About our motives. Jesus, Judas gives us a warning about our inner motives. His life reflects that. Why did Judas become a disciple of Jesus? Why did he become a disciple of Jesus? Probably Judas thought that Jesus would set up a political kingdom and he's, he's in lineup to get a top job. He could be for what he was doing, he could be the finance man there in that, in that, in, in that kingdom that Jesus would establish. Because he, he was in charge of the treasury. Even James and John had the aspirations of sitting at Jesus' right and left in the kingdom of God. But things weren't going as quite as Judas had hoped. Jesus was talking more and more about his death and the religious leaders weren't lining up behind him support his claims to be the Messiah. And so in disappointment, Judas bailed out by, by betraying Jesus. The question to you and I is, why do you follow Jesus? What is the motive? Most of us would have to admit that we come to Jesus for selfish reasons. We come, we had some needs or desires, and we hoped that Jesus would meet those needs. You know, church, sadly, people come to church, uh, people come to Jesus because he will fix my marriage. They come to Jesus because he will reward our financial bless. He will reward us with financial blessings. People come to Jesus because he will give them a better life. People come to Jesus because he will heal them of some disease. Once they received it, what they need, they become lethargic in their faith. Until another crisis strike, then they run back to the Lord. Sadly, to tell you the truth, I have known many such people in my career as a minister of the gospel. It is with time you will see where their heart really is. So let me ask you, this church, be honest. Why do you do what would you do when you encounter more trials in life than blessings? What would you do? What would you do when you discover that the path Jesus had called you to walk leads to a cross before it leads to a crown? 
do you still follow him and seek to glorify him? Or at such time, do you turn back, turn your back and move away from God? What are your motives to follow Jesus? The last thing that we see here is that and the severity of sin is the respond before it's too late. That's the last lesson we learn from Judas's life here. Judas shows that we should never walk away from the opportunity we receive from the Lord. You know, we know that Jesus loved Judas. We know that Jesus washed Judas's feet. We offered Judas the same opportunity to repent right up to the very end. But Judas walked away from the love of Jesus. He missed the opportunity when he realized that it was too late. It happened to Esau. Look at this passage. Later, like Esau, could not find repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Hebrews 12, 17 says this. For he, so, sorry, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Church, there will come a time to every one of us we might seek God with tears, with broken hearts on our bended knees to no avail. To no avail. It will be too late. Judas threw down his betrayal money in the temple. We know the story of how Judas' life ended at the very end and went away and hanged himself. Don't reject the love of Christ. No matter how badly you may have sinned, the Lord Jesus graciously reaches out to you today, even right now, through this message with his love. He invites all thirsty sinners to come and take the water of life without cost. Look at this passage, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It cost the Lord his life. It does not cost you anything. It's free. Church, as we decode the deception of Judas, we learn two things here. We learned the sovereignty of God. We saw the unfathomable wisdom of God. We saw the ultra patience and love of God. And also we saw the severity of sin. To know the dreadful nature of sin. That's our response today. To heed to the solemn warning that you received today. To get rid of the hypocrisy in your life, to examine the motives of your heart, why you want to follow Christ, and to respond before it's too late. You will only understand and appreciate the sovereignty of God. You will only understand the glory of God if you have a better understanding of the severity of sin. Let Judas teach you the bitter end of those who walk away from the love of Jesus. So come to him now. You'll be satisfied with his grace. 
come before it's too late. Can I ask the worship team to come now? The Sovereign Lord, the Lord of mercy and grace is reaching out to you this morning. With this verse, son, can you bring up the verse again, please? Okay. Now, can you go back to my message and bring up the last verse? Can I ask all of you to rise, please? Those who are able. Before they start to sing anything or play any instruments, let us take a moment to reflect on this invitation that we have today. You have it today, you are in the house of God, you have a chance to respond to this invitation. There is no guarantee that you will have this invitation tomorrow. There is no guarantee that you will ever be challenged. Today is the day. Don't be like Judas. When Judas openly went out and he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. He really thought that he was doing the right thing. Church, because it convicted him, because the truth always convicts, that is when Judas, the scripture says, he threw that 30 pieces of silver and he hung himself. And he said, this man has no sin. I want you to respond today if you have not. There might be three categories of people here in this congregation. There may be some who does not, have not committed your life to the Lord. May today be the day. There may be lukewarm believers here. Who are here because you are here and there. You are not neither here nor there. Or there are believers here who are struggling with besetting sins that you're unable to overcome. The Lord says, come. Come today. So we're going to sing a beautiful song now. Now you can go to the song now. And as that song, let it be our commitment to the Lord this morning. And if you want to be prayed over, please come to the front. Pastor Dio is here. I'm here. The elders are here. We love to pray with you. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Whether you're young or old, if the Spirit is ministering to, to you, please come as we sing this song.